WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote, and welcome to our holiday episode. Yes, we have summoned Rob Lynch, the third amigo, back into the fold, and we are talking about our favorite Yuletide comics. We've got tales of Spider Man, the X Men, Lobo, Batman, Spider Jerusalem, uh, Grant Morrison and Dan Mora's Claws, and much more, with a couple brief tangents into uh, Hostess Fruit Pie ads and 90s video game ads. Uh, I always love doing these Three Amigos episodes because I get to talk comics with my two best friends, and really, what more can you ask for in life? Uh, Meanwhile, over at WMQComics.com, we are still knee-deep in the WMQ Advent Calendar. Uh, Matt Lazowitz and I have been going through some of our favorite comics of the year, from Domino to The Seeds to Lockjaw to Strangers in Paradise. Uh, And this past week, WMQ contributor Andrew Magazoo got in on the action with a tribute to Transformers Lost Light. So please, check out those columns on the site, and if you like what we're doing, consider chipping in a couple bucks to our Patreon. Uh, Matt will even write one of his bonus reading columns uh, based around your suggestion if you do. It's the best Christmas present you could give us. Uh, But for now, here are me and Matt and Rob. So uh, I don't think we have any actual, you know, super strict format for this. I figured we'd just go around talking about our favorite uh, holiday-themed comics. Uh, Matt, why don't you start? Okay. Well, I mean, I, I, I put together a, a somewhat comprehensive list, but um, I will start by bringing up one of my favorite comic creators who seems to have a real soft spot for Christmas, and that is legendary Batman the Animated Series writer-producer Paul Dini. Dini, I love Dini stuff in general. But over the years, he's written a lot of Christmas comics, not to mention Christmas episodes of animation. I mean, the Mm -hmm. uh, Christmas with the Joker, I'm pretty sure is a Dini, but I know Justice League's Comfort and Joy is. uh, Holiday Nights, uh, which I will get back to when I talk about the comic that that was adapted from, are all uh, Dini's. I'm also pretty sure Dini wrote the Freakazoid Christmas (laughs) episode with arms akimbo (laughs) and his oops insurance. Oops. Come on, Freakazoid Revival. Um, (laughs) Kids, ask your parents about Freakazoid. We are old. (laughs) (laughs) But Dini's written uh, a handful of Christmas comics. Uh, Probably most notably is Jingle Bell, the story of Santa's delinquent daughter that he's written one-offs and miniseries for over the years through various publishers. Uh, The most recent drop from IDW this past Wednesday, Mm. a one-shot. But he it started out at Oni, and he they were, you know, black and white Oni comics of the late 90s, early aughts. And uh, the one from IDW that dropped this week was Full Color. And it's, you know, Jingle doesn't, you know, she's a typical teenager. She's the daughter of Santa and Mrs. Claus, who's queen of the elves, which is why the elves all work for Santa. Because nah. their queen is Mrs. Claus. Um, and Jingle doesn't want anything to do with you know, the Christmas thing. She wants to play hockey and hang out with her pet narwhal. And she has various friends. Like there's a Halloween witch and a a snow leopard person and a... Wait, a snow leopard person? Like a a furry? Kind of like Cheetah from the... Thundercats? No, uh, yeah, yeah, I was thinking the Wonder Woman villain. Oh, oh, Like Cheetah, but she's a snow leopard, not a cheetah. Got Um, it. And a sheriff from a town called Mutant, Texas, which was... A spin-off miniseries that Dini did with, uh, I think it was probably Jay Bone. 
on pencils. But they're they're all ages. They're quirky. Jingle usually learns her lesson by the end of the issue and is a better person for it. Um, but Deanie has done a couple of Christmas Batman stories. Um, one which is probably most forgotten is Sleigh Ride. S L A Y R I D E. Get it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, which was Detective 826 when Deanie was the regular writer on Detective doing various one-offs. Most of that entire run was one or two issue stories. So it's a great run to pick up. But this is a story where Tim Drake winds up, you know, somebody pulls up next to him when he's out on patrol and when opens the door and it's the Joker. And the Joker quickly ties him up with Christmas lights, pulls him into the car, and just goes on a joyride, hitting pedestrians and being the Joker, while Tim is working his way out of the trap. That is a very, like, Mark Hamill Joker now, plot. Yeah. <laughs> did he lay an egg and did the Batman lose a wheel while this is all happening? Well, of course. <laughs> while Batman is bathing elsewhere. Yes. It, no, it's, I mean, it is will be one of the darker stories on my list because I'm a, I'm a sucker for your heartfelt Christmas stories, which is why uh, Comfort and Joy, Justice League with uh, Martian Manhunter and Flash trying to find the DJ Rubba Ducky is my favorite animated justice animated uh, superhero Christmas. But the, the gem amongst Deanie's Christmas comics is the Batman Adventures holiday special. It was four shorts, three of which were adapted into Holiday Nights. Um, the Batgirl finding out that Clayface is shoplifting as various urchins. Uh, Harley and the Ivy, where Harley and Ivy kidnap Bruce Wayne, mesmerize him with Ivy's kissy powers, and go on a <laughs> shopping spree. And Joker trying to blow up Gotham on New Year's Eve. And ending with Bruce and Jim Gordon going out for a cup of coffee. But the fourth story was the best and wasn't adapted. Because by that point in the continuity of the cartoon, Mr. Freeze had become a cryogenically just frozen head on spider legs. And... Mechadizzy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this story was set when Freeze was still whole. And in it, it's Christmas Eve, and Freeze breaks out of Arkham and starts a massive blizzard. Just tons, and Bruce goes out to hunt him down, nearly hits a pedestrian because of the snow blindness, drives the Batmobile, you know, crashes it, and Bruce tracks down Freeze to a cemetery where he's, you know, got this giant snow cannon. And, you know, they tussle, and at one point Freeze kicks him, and Bruce falls back into a gravestone, which, of course, being this is a graveyard in Gotham, is his parents' grave. <laughs> so Bruce goes all uh, Tom King, Lee Weeks, cold days on Freeze, and, like, wails the hell out of him. <laughs> and in the end, he's got him, and he's, you know, like, why, Freeze? On all days, why today? And Freeze, and you... I'm not going to do the voice justice, but you, you, I can hear it in my head in Michael Ansara's oh. Mr. Freeze voice. Oh, yeah. And Freeze walks up to another grave, and it's his wife. Nora and I were married ten years ago on a snowy Christmas Eve. It seemed sad there would be no snow this year. And Bruce just helps him up, and they walk off with Bruce supporting him. Mm -hmm. 
and it's this beautiful moment and it shows the humanity of that animated series Batman that is often forgotten in some of the darker Batman it's why one of the reasons why Batman the animated series remains one of the sort of platonic ideals of Batman for me that was a really good Michael and Sarah, by the way. And this is coming from one of my favorite Star Trek characters of all time is Kang. Oh, yeah. So, thank you very much. Sir. Yeah. Uh, Do we want to go around a little and then we'll kind of circle back? Yeah, yeah. We'll next? just keep going around and around. Rob, what's, well, your, uh, what's your first I, pick? I have uh, three choices. Uh, two of them, I would say, are uh, old chestnuts that uh, please feel free to roast on an open fire. And then uh, for the third it's, and it's last... It's not baby, it's cold outside. I hear that's problematic. <laughs> uh, and for the third one, I'm just going to straight out pissing the punch bowl. I'm just going to put that out there right now. So, when you uh, put this together for today about talking about our favorite Christmas comics, the, the immediate thing that came into mind was, you know, my old X-Men reading back in the day. And mm-hmm. this is um, December of 1988. It's uh, Uncanny 230. Ooh. Um, to give you guys a little bit of backstory, because, uh, first of all, this whole era, this is the beginning of the uh, Australian Outback era, mm-hmm. which is probably the most underprinted of all, I mean, it's sort of the cult favorite of X Men fans. I mean, outside of Inferno and a few of the Jim Lee right. villains, it has yet to be an, an epic collection. Or you get it in the essentials, yeah, but but right, color yeah, a full like a, reprint. Yeah. The good handsome. I mean, I think it's very overdue. But mm-hmm. um, this was uh, the X Men have arrived. Um, They're uh, through some mystical occurrences in Dallas involving a uh, forge an obscure villain named the adversary and uh, a government sanctioned version of the brotherhood, uh, ironically called freedom force. There's, there's your uh, X-Men history uh, lesson for today. Uh, the X-Men are uh, believed to be dead by the world. And uh, they see this as an opportunity to go into hiding, to protect their loved ones and to strike out against their enemies. And they settle down in Australia and the first thing that they encounter is the uh, earliest incarnation of the Reavers. The Reavers have kind of uh, have their own little town, and uh, they've co-opted um, a local mutant, uh, Aboriginal mutant named uh, Gateway, who's able to teleport, uh, similar to Ileana. And they're basically plunderers. I mean, they go around, you know, violently robbing and, and, and things. And uh, the X Men basically clean town. They get rid of the Reavers and take their bases their own. One of the first things that they discover is um, the hordes of treasure that the Reavers have stolen from throughout the world. I mean, you know, Gateway is able to transport them anywhere. And one of my favorite things about the story is it, it's a great long shot story. Who's somebody who really never got their due. Somebody who never really fit into that team. I mean, he like literally in every uh, aspect of the work fell into the X-Men. <laughs> yes. <laughs> kind of served as a replacement to uh, Nightcrawler, in a way. I mean, you know, the happy-go-lucky kind of character, the, the, the agile character, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, that that happy-go-lucky, yeah, moral center. Um, I think they were kind of like, you know, looking to replace Nightcrawler, and also, you know, being an alien, kind of reproduce uh, the success they had with Warlock mm-hmm. on the New Mutants. You know, really became like an immediate mainstay, and I don't think it really worked i mean they, they never really got back to the charm of that original miniseries and here they do i think really for the first and only time in his uh brief time with the x-men one of long shots abilities i mean we have his agility we have his you know incredible luck mm-hmm. 
is that he has an ability to touch an object and to basically get like a psychic imprint of maybe who owned the object or where its origin is. And he starts going through the treasure and he's actually able to determine where these things belonged and what kind of effect it had on the people when it was stolen. And he has this idea, wait a minute, why don't we take this stuff? We have this, you know, we're heroes. Let's bring them back to everybody. We have a teleporter. I can figure out where they go. And of course the X-Men are against it. Like Wolverine's completely, this is a waste of our time. I mean, you know, we've been fighting for our lives for all this time. We can, you know, this isn't what we do. And it's actually Storm who kind of gets on his side. Like, I think it's a great idea. So they go through an entire night where Longshot touches every item. They come <laughs> up with piles and using Gateway, they transport almost all the treasure back around the world. And it's a little bit goofy, but you know they, they realize what night it is. It's Christmas night. And there's a sense of accomplishment and, and joy that, uh, of the X-Men from actually getting to be heroes. I mean, not mutant outcasts that are fighting for their lives and fighting for righteousness. If there's no peace in the world, they're still goodwill to men. And they really established that. And I mean, even Wolverine comes around and says, you know, no, this turned out to be a great victory, one of the best. And it's such a great moment. And the, and the whole issue is bookended by a wonderful scene. I mean, where you have Gateway, who was, you know, basically threatened by the Reavers to do their work. And, you know, here they, you have this other band coming in. And Rogue reaches out to him with kindness. She first brings him food. And one of the things that she gets on her adventures is a flute. And on that final page is she gives him a flute as a gift. And she walks away thinking that, you know, he's going to reject it. And he just very quietly, like, pats down a spot next to him. And she sits next to him and he plays the flute for her. You know, it's it's, it's a really nice issue. I mean, for a book that really kind of, for years at that point, I would say even after, you know, the whole Dark Phoenix, I mean, really went on a fatalistic that. Oh, that was yeah, an incredibly oh, dark period. Constantly fighting for especially their lives. the last two years, like everything from yes. mutant massacre to fall of the mutants. Oh yeah, I mean completely on the lam, and it's kind of an interesting capper to that year because that was really um, the beginning of the Sylvester era, mm-hmm. where they really got back to like capers. I mean, it started out where they were saving Madeline in San Francisco, mm-hmm. then they ended up in Dallas, and the book kind of took on very briefly like a, a more adventurous, mystical vibe to it, and I think it's something that's been missing. For many years and that's why i think that it's such a touchstone you know that period but uh i mean coming back down to it i mean it's kind of a minor blip as far as a holiday issue or even as an x-men issue i forgot about it to be quite honest <clears throat> to, to me it, it's very special i mean i i've always loved Longshot. i, I mm-hmm. love his miniseries and i always wished he'd gotten a better do i mean thankfully peter david really brought him back to the party with X-Factor. He remembered, Peter David remembered that he had that psychometric power, which yes. nobody, rem- I didn't even, because I hadn't read that yeah. those issues by the time he showed up in X-Factor. And I was pretty sure, oh, Peter David must have invented that power for him because I'd never seen it in any of the like little scattered appearances of Longshot I'd seen. No, and Asenti and uh, R. Adams established that in, you know, in that original miniseries. Yeah. And they really spoke finally to the charm of that character. Where I mean, this is somebody who very enigmatic to everyone, including himself. And you've got to think at this point, he doesn't even know what his purpose is. But there's just something inherently good and noble about him and like immediately likable. And it was just nice for once that that came into play. So that was a little Christmas present to me in, in, in uh, <laughs> the winter of 1988. So, uh, so I kind of I made a, a mad dash to pull some books uh, this morning that I had in my collection, although I think I, I wrote a few other 
examples down. I mean, obviously, with the X-Men, there is a, a history of good uh, Christmas issues. I mean, the very beginning of the all-new, all-different era in the 70s, they got kidnapped by Sentinels mm. on, on Christmas, and that's how you got the Phoenix. And then, of course, there's that great Claremont and... Um, I forget who drew it now. Issue where Kitty fends off the Nagarai demon. It's it was John Byrne? Okay. I wasn't sure if he had left it's yet. It's Byrne's last issue because it's right after Days of Future Past. Okay. Yeah. You know, so she has her little uh, alien parody uh, in the mansion. But the book that I have splayed right out in front of me is uh, Uncanny X-Men number 341. Uh, so this would have been like Christmas 1996, the uh, height of the Joe Mad uh, era. When um, they're all out in Times Square, and I think it's like Christmas Eve, and Cannonball goes uh, Christmas shopping, you know, in uh, FAO Schwartz, and ends up getting into a fight with Gladiator and uh, holding his own. There's a subplot where uh, Joseph, you guys remember Joseph, the young <laughs> Magneto clone? <laughs> Ask your parents, kids. Yeah, right. <laughs> where he basically took all of uh, Charles Xavier's old machinery and built like a power dampener for her so we could give her a, a Christmas kiss because there was a whole love triangle with her and Gambit at the time. But uh, I like this as an example of a cannonball issue because Homeboy needed the W at the time. Uh, this was when he was a rookie on the X-Men after like two years of basically leading X-Force in Cable's absence and also being like one of the original New Mutants. So they put him on the big team and all of a sudden he's like a small fish again and very like, you know, the worst cannibal stories of that era kind of play up the hayseed angle versus, you know, no, this is really like his gener he's his generation Cyclops. Like in a lot of ways, I actually like Cannonball more than, more than Cyclops. Um, which I know is probably blasphemy in some some circles of X-Men <laughs> Twitter. But, uh, yeah, I, I really just like this issue because of uh, Cannonball gets to beat the crap out of, uh, you know, one of the toughest guys in the Marvel Universe. You know, some of, one of their, uh, you know, all-purposes uh, alien uh, supermen. So that's my uh, first pick going off the bat there. Actually, when you opened it, the yeah. first page... For some reason, I might, and I'm trying to remember, the the first page of that Claremont issue with the Sentinels, Yeah, I think is a really similar construction. I have a feeling it is. And that's what I was trying to find, I was just quickly trying yeah. to Google that page and I can't find it. But I'm pretty sure that, that that's an homage. There's actually some, there's some good Easter eggs in this issue. Like there's a random panel where the Punisher is walking by for, for no reason, uh, you know, not at all related. And then there's another panel. Uh, I don't quite like this one as much, but it's Bob Harris, the X-Men editor at the time, sitting in his office complaining about how Scott and Joe, Scott Lobdell and Joe Matarera at the time, writing and drawing, uh, were behind on an issue. And all of a sudden, a horse-drawn sled flies past his window and decides he's going to go home and spend Christmas with his family. And look, there's an advertisement for Contra Legacy of War, which is probably <laughs> one of the worst Sat Sega Saturn games that I own. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I've said this before on the podcast, but I love... One of my favorite things about looking at comics from the 90s is the ads. Oh. All those old 
lot of them terrible video yeah. game oh, ads. Oh, man. Yeah. 80s and 90s. I love the 80s covers, the ads for all the D&D supplements yeah. and D&D Oh, settings. you still got those in the oh, early oh, 90s. Still that carries on. Too, but, but, like, this is, like, the height of the Nintendo Sega Wars. And so they're just pumping comics full of those kinds of ads. And also Combo Man. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, Matt, what's your, uh, what's your next pick? My next pick... Um, Again, I, I'm going to be kind of cheating as I, I have a lot, but mine fit into <laughs> themes. So back, we all know that both Marvel and DC do uh, holiday specials pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be you know years where suddenly there's like a two or three year gap, and then they'll start doing them again. There's a lot this year. There's a lot this year. But back in the 90s, both Marvel and DC pretty consistently through the mid 90s mm-hmm. had holiday specials. DC Marvel just called them the holiday specials. Uh, DC called them uh, the DC Universe Holiday Bash. Mm-hmm. And both there's one issue of each of them that really stick in my head. The Marvel one was the 1992 special. Um, and there are two stories in it that I remember really clearly. One of them is very comedic. It's Peter David at his kind of slapstickiest. <laughs> uh, it's a Doc Samson Hanukkah story. I thought you were going to say it was a slapstick story. Oh, <laughs> I, I guarantee you in one of those there is a slapstick Christmas story. Uh, There's not this one. No, this is uh, uh, a Hebrew school teacher. I think probably his old Hebrew school teacher asks Doc Samson to come and speak in front of the class and tell them the story of Hanukkah. And he starts, and the kids are bored. So he starts subtly working superheroes into the story <laughs> until by the end he's saying that, you know, oh yeah, and that the oil that lasted eight days, that was because the human torch kept the flames going. And the Hebrew school teacher just kind of like basically runs him out of the classroom on a rail. Because I will tell you, they say nuns are scary, and they can be. Hebrew school teachers, just as scary. <laughs> uh, the other story is qualifies as possibly the weirdest Christmas story on my list. It is a Thanos and young Gamora Christmas story. Jim Starlin and Ron Lim. Um, and it's Thanos cleaning, you know, he's, he's basically, you know, cleaning out one of his old bases, robots taking stuff. And uh, he finds this ratty, beat-up little doll. And he remembers that years before when he was raising Gamora, and the the current concept that Thanos is basically this horrible, abusive monster the entire time, is out of the MCU. Jim Starlin generally has written a much more subtle and much more nuanced Thanos than what we get in the MCU. So this isn't a story about how he took away half of Gamora's presence. No. No, it is not. <laughs> they, just, they just kind of flitted away into dust <laughs> as she was unwrapping them. <laughs> he just out. <laughs> this is... Thanos is trying to... He knows that you know various planets celebrate their winter solstices, and he decides to use Earth as his example, and there's a Christmas tree, and she gets a gift, and it's this little doll. And Thanos... You know, since, since she goes off to bed with the doll, and she's so excited to have the doll, and Thanos goes working in his lab doing Thanos things, when this, like, tentacly alien assassin slips in and is getting ready, and he, like, he's leveled his blaster at Thanos, and he's about to fire, and then suddenly the doll comes flying out of nowhere and hits the alien in the side of the head, and the shot goes wild, and Thanos turns around and blasts the guy into oblivion, 
and the doll is scorched in the process. And Thanos being Thanos, kind of like, oh, your doll is damaged. I'll get you another one. And Gamora's like, no, no, I, I'll, I'll make Dolly all better. And it's like, oh. And, and Thanos himself is seeming a little touched. And then when we flash back to the present, the, the robot who found it, like, what should I do with it? And Thanos is like, oh, destroy it with the rest. But then it pans away, and Thanos like grabs one of the consoles and just crushes it because he's feeling the weight of what he did to Gamora. And it's like, it's one of those moments where, oh, right, Thanos is actually, for want of a better term, human at times. But it's also a Thanos Christmas, which is <laughs> weird. It's more it's more xenocidal than your average Christmas. Yes! <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and the DC Universe holiday bashes, there were three of them. I think it was 94, 95, 96, or 95, 96, 97. And I remembered a bunch of stories. And I'm like, okay, which one was this in? Oh, 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 that one was in number two. What about the other one? Oh, that one was in number two, too. So by the end, it was like the four stories I remembered from, that I thought were across these three one-shots mm-hmm. were all in number two. <laughs> um, one of them is also 90s because it's Connor Hawk, Oliver Queen's Buddhist monk archer's son who was Green Arrow when Ollie was dead. And Kyle Rayner, the Green Lantern of the 90s, who still shows up every now and then, but has been mostly eclipsed by the return of Hal Jordan, are the two of them going out Christmas shopping. Wally West wasn't involved No, as well. Wally West was not involved. That would have actually made it more 90s. That's, yes. that's the hat trick right there. Yeah, that, that, there was a crossover with the three of them once. But the two of them go Christmas shopping, and the department store gets robbed, and the two of them have to stop it. And Connor, you know talks about, you know, the importance of giving and, you know, non-materialistic Christmas. And Kyle goes like, oh boy, I can get this for this person. Kyle really doesn't get it. Um, there's also... Wait, isn't Kyle, like, deeply Catholic? It, I don't know if Ron Mars ever treated him as much so. Okay. Am I just going off of Omega Man? I think, yeah. I think that was something that Tom King really okay. played up more. Um one is there's a story uh, set in the 1940s. Uh, I left my heart at the JSA Cantina. It's a young soldier about to ship off to the, to Europe, and it's you know one of those you know old U.S. It's you know the USO type cantinas, but it's at the Justice Society. So there's all the superheroes and you know Black Canary and Wildcat and all them. And this young soldier is there with them an ensign he was a sailor young sailor Mm -hmm. and in the he finds out there's some fifth columnists some nazi spies in the cantina and he helps the jsa and in the end and again this is not this story is clearly not in continuity but he's ensign james gordon oh it's a young jim gordon helping the jsa Mm -hmm. and it's it's just it's howard chaykin story rick burchett art so it's beautiful and i'm not a huge chaykin guy but this is chaykin possibly at his least creepily chakeny <laughs> it's just a, a sweet little story um there is a one page ty templeton written and drawn dark side so speaking of weird dark side is there on apocalypse and his soldier he's he's made it through the the defenses sir he's getting closer he's, he's making it through and the doors burst open and in walks santa claus you nearly got me this year, son. He hands Darkseid a lump of coal. Better luck next year. And just walks away. And it, it you can probably find it online because it is just one page. 
but it is wonderful. The only thing that would make that story better is if that, like, his reaction is just him stoically double dipping into a veggie tray after he gets the <laughs> lump of coal. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Because or like, I got something for you as well. He just rips out one of his eyeballs. No. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh. the the special wraps with um, a sort of called the old lane sign. Uh, it's Dick Grayson and Oracle. Back, it's Chuck Dixon and Brian Stelfreeze. And it's just when Dixon is starting to build Dick and Babs towards a relationship. Because, I mean, during, there was, for, I mean, for all of those Titans years, he was with Starfire. So he and Starfire split when he leaves the Teen Titans. And Dixon took a number of years to get Dick and Babs together. Mm-hmm. But they're sitting here and they're, it's New Year's Eve, and they're reminiscing about, you know, being young, dumb superheroes. And, Barbara remember you know, this old, old Lang Syne and she's like you know, I thought it was a place the old Lane sign and Dick's like you kidding I thought there was a villain named Mistletoe what a crappy power that would have been <laughs> and in the end you know, he goes off to do his thing he's, you know Merry Christmas Babs and she wheels into her control room and he actually has a street sign old the old Lane sign waiting for her in there hmm. and it's Dixon giving this sweet moment between them that is still a couple of years before no man's land when they actually start to be a couple but it's just i love those characters i i'm generally not a person who ships characters but dick and babs and bruce and selena are like the two because like they should be together (laughs) um but yes make them kiss yes i will take my action figures and just slap (laughs) them together kiss kiss (laughs) okay like, there are a lot of other over the years anthologies. A couple of them, that, you know, um, there's the classic um, '80s Christmas with the superheroes that DC did that has the Alan Brenner heart wrenching, rent, rent, wrenching, not wrenching, wrenching. Um, Dead man meets the spirit of Kara Zor-El who had died in the crisis, mm. and there's a from Marvel's 2006 special. Uh, how Fin Fang Foom saved, saved Christmas with Roger Langridge drawing, and I can't remember who the writer is, I forgot to write it down, where a Fin Fang Foom who's been shrunk down to human size <laughs> and is uh, a chef at a restaurant in Greenwich Village uh, runs into Wong and the two of them fight Hydra. It, it is a delight. It, it sounds delightful. It is in the Fin Fang 4, is reprinted later in the Fin Fang 4 returns one shot if you can track down the two fin fang four one shots where it's reed richards had shrunk down fin fang foom goom son of gog gagoom son of goom Gugum, son of goom yep and a couple of other monsters and they're <laughs> human size and they have to like work together and live normal lives and there's two one shots one that was just a one shot and one that was a reprint of a bunch of shorts from various specials mm-hmm. they're wonderful and how fin fang foom saved christmas is amongst them i, I you had me at kirby monsters <laughs> yep um Rob, what's, so you, what's your next pick? I'm still stuck on the idea of like a Thanos Christmas special. All I can envision is him flying around in this Thanos copter. <laughs> yes. Dropping down, you know, like poison candy down like half the chimneys <laughs> before the police take him away. <laughs> and then suddenly, you know, he finds in his large orange stocking that Lady Death left him nothing. <laughs> Although, wait, you know, the, the, the Thanos copter is from the 80s, so it's not poison candy. It's poison hostess Fruit pies. Razor blades and apple. Oh, yes. Uh, and we can bring in the Fumi Goonies. Yes. <laughs> oh. 
by the way, speaking really quick, so yes. we're off the cuff. Yeah. So Funko, every uh-huh. Wednesday, releases these really exclusive Funko Pops on their Funko shop. There's only like a couple of thousand. And they're really stuck on these ad icons again. And they had Fruit Pie the Magician. Okay. From the 80s. Oh. And I had to get that son of a bitch just because of my love <laughs> for the Fumi Goonies. I mean, these things sell out within five minutes. <laughs> and I was right on it. I got him. Uh, yeah, I yeah. missed. They did a, a chrome red Batman last week that I missed. Yeah. Like, oh. So that's my little digression. <laughs> so my, my second choice, um, it's, it's another slight choice, but it, it, it's pretty memorable. And it's also from uh, that great year of 1988, because uh, I'm never going to give that up. It's um, it's never gonna let you down. <laughs> uh, Amazing Spider-Man three fourteen, which yes is the uh, Michelini McFarlane era. Now uh, the story of this was uh, Peter and Mary Jane are evicted from their apartment. It's Christmas. Um, as soon as Aunt May finds out, I mean you know immediately she's like I don't have much space, but you guys come to live with me. And no no no. I mean Peter has his pride and wants to be the adult and everything and. Basically, you know, the whole story is him being Spider-Man, doing his Spider-Man things, and also splitting up his time as Parker, desperately trying to find a home for him and Mary Jane. And it's very brief. You know, at the end, he finally ends up at visiting Uncle Ben's grave site and finds May there. And she tells him that, you know, this is something that I do every single year, and I never wanted to tell you that while you were growing up, that, you know... As much as I, you know, I miss him, I still want to visit him, and I don't want to sour that. And then he realizes how much it would actually mean to her if they moved in. So they decide, you know, that they're going to move in. And then the final page is them having, you know, a little Christmas get-together. I mean, very slight, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, if you really think about the legacy of that era, I mean, Venom is it going to immediately come to mind. Yeah. The thing that really kind of struck me about the Michelini era is... Uh, Spider-Man was very much a working-class hero. It really goes back to that original idea that Marvel Comics, I mean, you're going to have these fantastic people in, in these, you know, fantastic costumes, but behind that, they're ordinary people with ordinary problems. And it's just kind of refreshing to see that. I mean, anybody who's, you know, like a newlywed, who's like, you know, either had to struggle, you know, finding a place and rent and then finding a home and, you know, really trying to get your life started, I mean... I don't know how, you know, if that's really going to appeal to certain comic readers. I mean, I know the, the whole thing about the decision to reverse the marriage and what doesn't appeal to this section and everything like this. Mm-hmm. But kind of looking back on it now and looking back on my life in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, I mean, it really has that part in there, right? Everything. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's a, a nice little holiday issue. I mean, in, in the middle of all the venom, you know, yeah. insanity. <laughs> so that, that really it that's a good one um for next i think we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up uh these have been coming out reliably like once a year for the past four or five years now i think but the um grant morrison dan mora claws stories Mm. at uh, boom studios where uh santa or or saint nicholas is basically this uh dark ages winter warrior who you know uh, once a year, uh, graces us with his presence, writing uh, Yuletide wrongs. I think he teams up with like a magical father who was turned into a snowman or something this year. Uh, last year, he fought like a dark version of himself 
who was used as a mascot for like a soda company. I may be conflating a few of these. I think children were enslaved. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it, it's very much peak Grant Morrison. It is, it's acid Christmas comics. It's, uh, it's those more obscure Rankin Bass specials that like freeform shows once a year, like once, because they are trippy as balls. And I'm not talking about like Rudolph or Frosty or the year without a Santa Claus. I'm talking about like the legend of Santa Claus. The origin of Santa Claus with the winter warlock and Burgermeister Meisterburger. Hold that thought. I'm going to come back to something about that later. Please. But go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. uh, Like that's, that's the level of mythology that we're getting into here. And, uh, yeah, I always love reading those. They're fun as hell. But you were going to say. Really quick, you know, speaking of the Rankin Bass, this is something I actually wanted to bring up. Um, just saw uh, Spider-Verse. And the animation style. It's a very, like, pop art. But I sort of, like, with that lowered frame rate, sort of got that Rankin Bass stop-motion feel to it. And I can see that. It, yeah. I've been trying to... Because I went into Spider-Verse, pardon me, you know, guys, we... Uh, wander for a moment i was a little nervous because the trailers was like okay this is quirky and this is stylized but once you fall into it it really works and i i've been trying to think of something and yeah there is a stop motiony rank and bassiness that i i can completely mm-hmm. see where you're coming from there i will say it's, it's too off track i'll tell you know everybody who's listening to this i mean this is a holiday treat it's not a holiday themed movie <laughs> take your families to go see this it really is magical it, it's a great piece of work absolutely I, uh, I haven't seen it yet. I'm the odd man out here, but I am taking my son uh, later today and uh, very much looking forward to it because I have not heard an unkind word about this movie. Um, I think we're back to you. Okay. Um, now I'm going to... I'm narrowing down from something bigger now into something a little smaller. These are two stories that, I mean, are separated by years in their telling, but in my head, they're sort of the world's finest Christmas stories. It's a Batman story and a Superman story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Batman story is from the 70s. It's The Silent Night of Batman. It's Mike Friedrich and Neil Adams. And it's a short. It's maybe 12 pages. Uh, it's not completely silent, but it's most... And it's Batman you know, going into Gotham on Christmas Eve, and there's no crime. And you see, you know, he thinks... You know, he watches this guy, you know, this young running after this old woman he's like oh he's gonna mug her he's gonna mug her and no he hands her something she dropped and kids break into a store and steal a toy and then they un- or i can't remember if it's a store or a house and they steal a toy and they unwrap the toy and it's a batman doll and they wrap it back up and return it and it ends with bruce going to the gcpd and singing carols with the the cops and it's just, it's a night of peace for Batman, which is not the kind of thing you normally get. And there are other stories that have the Batman finding no crime. And at least one of them ends with him saying that what a terrible night it was. But this, and I've never liked that ending. Never liked that ending. I prefer this where there's no crime and he's happy. Because this is what he's trying to do. Um... The Superman story is from the early 90s. It's a little before, about a year before the death of Superman. Um, it's called Metropolis Mailbag. Uh, Dan Jurgens, who was writing Superman at the time, 
I actually did a few of these Metropolis mailbags over the years, but the first one sticks in my head. It was uh, drawn by Butch, but then going by Jackson Geis. Um, and it establishes that every Christmas Eve, Superman goes to the main branch of the Metropolis post office and goes into the room that they have, this room that is filled with letters and packages, all the mail sent to Superman for the year. And he reads through them, and he finds people that are asking for something deserving. And he goes and he helps people. And he, you know, at one point he flies a, you know, Santa in to bring presents to underprivileged kids, and he, he helps people rebuild their houses there's one story in here that one bit that sticks in my head where there's a woman who wrote to him that she lost she and her sister were separated during the holocaust and she's certain that her sister is still alive and he finds her and he reunites them on christmas and it's a beautiful story it was reprinted in the uh Walmart, the Walmart's doing the mm. DC, but they did a Christmas one that reprints various Christmas stories, and it's reprinted in there, so it's easy to find going to any Walmart. Um, but they, the second one was during Funeral for a Friend. Clark is dead, so the Justice League and various heroes gather together to do what Superman would have done. And I think Jurgens did one or two more before he left. But it's it shows the real humanity of Superman better than nearly any other story I can think of. And it's really a Christmas story. That is, uh, that is beautiful. Again, again, to that theme of, you know, there may not be peace on earth, but there is goodwill to men. Yes. And that, that really is. I mean, I never even had heard of that and I'm looking forward to yeah. digging that up. Okay. So here it comes. So, so you're about to piss on all of this. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Let's talk for a second about Zeitgeist. I'm not talking about our acid-spewing friend. <laughs> May he rest in peace. Um, 1991. Talk about readership in comics and the target audience and things like that. And I'm going to compare it to Danny Cooksey. Child actor Danny Cooksey. Middle 80s, little red-headed moppet on different strokes. <laughs> you know, getting into little adventures with Arnold, getting kidnapped. I will kill your parents, Sam. <laughs> Come 1991, and we see him. He's got his little obnoxious haircut, shaved on the side with the mullet, mm -hmm. wears his you know, jean jacket with the sleeves cut off, riding on the back of John Connor's motorcycle, listening to Guns N' Roses. This is 1991. This is that the bully on The Simpsons with the shaved head, uh -huh. you know, that hangs out with Nelson. So in the year of our Lord 1991... How do we tell a Christmas tale to, to this ilk? You got the Lobo paramilitary <laughs> Christmas special. That was some beautiful build-up. Yes. <laughs> this is Danny Cooksey on the back of that motorcycle listening to Guns N' Roses. I think up until more recently with books like Crossed and then Garth Ennis' Max version of uh, The Punisher, probably the most gratuitously and viscerally violent thing ever committed <laughs> to, to paper. <laughs> I, I, everybody should know the story by now. I mean, basically, it's Lobo, you know, the meanest bastard in the universe. <laughs> takes out a hit. You know, the Easter Bunny hires him to take out St. Nicholas. Which is exactly what it is. I mean, he 
leads a full-out assault on the North Pole with his, you know, pet... What was it? Uh, pit, not a pit bull. Uh, yeah, uh, a bulldog. The bulldog. <laughs> acts absolutely, invi- you know, eviscerates elves. <laughs> I mean, you, you see, you know, every... Having gone through school, you know, with anatomy and everything, I can actually identify all the <laughs> organs that are on display in full, glorious color. <laughs> I, the whole thing, I mean, you're reading it, and it's like, this is really a giant middle finger to the spirit of Christmas. You get to the last page, and it is literally a giant middle finger <laughs> to the reader. I'm still deciding on, you know... This was the age of the anti-hero. I mean, this was, you know, Ghost Rider was big and the Punisher was big and, you know, Cable and Wolverine and everything like this. If this was either a really savage satire, like a knowing thing, or if this is like the worst example of something that needed to be beaten with the satire stick, I think I'm leading more towards <laughs> the former. I mean, Keith Giffen was, was one of the things behind it. But... Giffen has given shocked at the comic shop where I worked for many years and he himself said he he wrote Lobo as a parody. Yeah. It was everybody else who treated him like a real legitimate badass. It, it is the most gleefully obscene thing I think ever published by the big two to this day. <laughs> it's a classic. I mean, and to kind of footnote that, I actually got to meet uh, Simon Bisley. A very drunken Simon Bisley. The first time we we, we make an annual pilgrimage to visit the biz. Uh, oh, first <laughs> of all, cheap, cheap quick plug for East Coast Comic Con. <laughs> Which I think he will be a guest again, and we will be uh, Marvelous. bringing he's, beers to his table again this his year. His usual corner table, yes. But, yeah, I mean, the, the man's you know hands are full of ink. I mean, he's two, five sheets to the wind at this point. He sees Dan and I, oh, what a lovely American couple you make. <laughs> And I produced my copy, my very well-loved copy of uh, the paramilitary special. I tell him, go to town on this. I don't want you to just sign it. I want you to deface this in the style in which you defaced <laughs> the very spirit of Christmas. <laughs> and, like, literally, like, holding the pen like a, like a two-year-old would hold a fork. <laughs> I don't know how many F-bombs. There's F-bombs. There's genitalia. There's things pointing to the genitalia with more F-bombs. And then his name just very crudely off. I met Keith Giffen, uh, I think it was at the same show years later, <laughs> to produce the same thing. And I said, Keith, uh, uh, Simon was here. Can you top this? <laughs> and he just looked at it. He's like, oh, Simon. <laughs> he's like, no, I can't. It just wrote Keith Giffen handed it back to me. Like, <laughs> so that's my experience with that. It, it, you know, I've, I've got really fond memories of that because, I mean, it, it, speaking of that zeitgeist, I mean, I was 13 when this came out and I remember bringing that to school. It was in eighth grade. And, you know, in between class and study hall and lunch, that thing got passed around. You want to talk about, like, digital piracy and things like that? That was the real piracy back in the day. When that shit gets passed around to, like, every single hand in the classroom. And, like, man, you really are a weird one. <laughs> I get that all the time, you know, especially with that. Nobody was ever able to top it. I mean, Liefeld tried Santa the Barbarian and that yeah. didn't work. Nobody's ever to make, able to make a Christmas comedy that was quite as fun. I got remembered for that. And then ah. years later, I mean, when everybody's on Facebook and everybody mm-hmm. is friends with people that they graduated from in high school and you never talk to them, 
well, that was like one of the only times I sent like personal messages in the pictures. Like, you remember this? <laughs> and they're like, oh my god, I remember that. You got some. Oh, and you're ah. drinking with the guy. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, so that that's my story with that. And uh, yeah, for I mean, it's it's. Crude as it was, I, I don't know if you could duplicate something like that now. I mean, we have things like Crossed. And, but for something that knowingly obscene, I mean, really, it, it is of that time. And I just had to throw that in there. You know, I, I tried to find something more wholesome. I did my research. and I didn't want you to. I specifically was, like, hoping you would bring yeah, up the logo. No, spell. I was just speaking, like, right from the heart, like, you know, as I was buying them. And actually, like, a little bit of backstory real quick about that, that Spider-Man issue. And this might give you guys a little bit of nostalgia and some of our listeners. Um, I actually didn't get that when it was published. It was like a year or two later. Remember back in the day, they actually had like comic collection starter kits that you could get. And it was an official Marvel one. I think it was Christmas of 1990. My folks got me it. And, uh, you know, it came with like sort of an early version of a long box. It's like decorated, you know, like the R. Adam style X-Men and everything. Mm-hmm. And it came with a price guide and bags and boards and things like that. And it got you your own starter comics and it was like you know a selection of you know like tom defalco thors and you know a couple like the inferno era but that issue of spider-man was in there and it was just kind of i got this for christmas and here there's a christmas issue of spider-man so that gives it a little bit more resonance to include that today but you don't really have those kits anymore do you not, not that, that I can I'm think aware of. of. The closest no. thing I can think is like you go into like five below and they have those like those three pack bags sure. but, yeah you know as far as like hobby starting you know i mean unless like you go to like beachcomber or something i don't even know if they have them then i mean that was the thing back then like if you were into collecting baseball cards they had all kinds of you know starter kits and things like that and i kind of miss that element of the hobby it's like a little bit too exclusively hardcore and geared towards the initiated now i think it would be a neat thing if they had especially you know yeah for for the younger crowd oh yeah yeah. you know (laughs) give a sampler of you know, not the paramilitary Christmas special, but no. <laughs> uh, this is a footnote before Dan has his final yeah. pick. Um, when it come, in case you didn't, my, most of mine are kind of wholesome, heartfelt Christmas stories. Uh, there's one that I do distinctly remember that also fits more in the Lobo Paramilitary Christmas special. Is it the Spider Jerusalem? Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Vertigo did three Vertigo's Winter's Edge one shots. They were. You know, anthologies, uh, I bought them initially because Neil Gaiman did an endless short in each one. There was a de- two were Desire and one was Death. But the most memorable story from any of these is from number two. And it is one of the two transmetropolitan ones. And it's Spider-Jerusalem just walking through the city, seeing just how fucked up Christmas has become in the future <laughs> and eventually like a news crew comes up to him and like asks him about what he feels about Christmas and he goes off <laughs> and I years ago there was a, a book called comics I believe it was comic writers on comic script writing or something like that and they interviewed various you know really big name Gaiman was in there uh, Grant Morrison was in there, and he tells a story about uh, meeting fifth-dimensional silver blob entities while on a hashish trip in Kathmandu. Sounds right. And Ellis is in there, and Ellis is saying that that is the story where the note that he got from editorial actually found a way to make the story more obscene. <laughs> because initially, there, it's supposed to be a close-up on Spider-Jerusalem, and this is going to earn us an, e- an explicit rating, but... 
I am okay with that. I mean, we're all, we already have it. But yes, yeah. but this is going to really earn it. You just had to make me hold your beer, didn't you? I bring up Lobo. <laughs> Damn. Props to you, sir. Go ahead. Uh, it, 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 the line was originally written as, I killed Santa! I killed him with my cock! <laughs> but the editors didn't like that. So I was like, all right, all right, hold my beer. Uh, he has Derek Robertson and said, pull out. And instead, it's Spider grabbing himself. I killed Santa. I killed him with this. <laughs> <laughs> and it is just one of the most Warren Ellis panels to ever Warren Ellis in a Warren Ellis comic. It is not as... It doesn't quite top the paramilitary Christmas special, but it is just something so... Memorable when you, with that interview, especially, it just sticks in my head. Is like, wow, editors, be careful what you wish for because Warren Ellis will give it to you. That actually tops Johnny Blaze actually just setting himself on fire in ruins, where he's like, mm. <laughs> the, the stunt cyclist. And yeah, that's the way he becomes Ghost Rider. He literally, yeah, screaming. Cool. <laughs> that, that is oh, one of those very Bill Jemis era. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Marville and Trouble. Oh boy. Ooh, Trouble. Ooh, neither of those are. <laughs> the book that keeps coming up on our podcast, but I brought it up, so I only have myself to blame. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm going to close and uh, anticlimactically uh, with the new hotness. Uh, this is just from like last week or two weeks ago, maybe at this point, but the Merry X-Men holiday special advent st- at calendar style uh, jam which was a ton of fun. It kind of brings home the point that a lot of people honestly have been making kind of uh, among the X-Men fandom that, you know, the X-Men are, are very much like entering a new golden era with a deep bench of writers who honestly get these characters. They feel like a family again. Yeah. Yes. More importantly. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, but uh, yeah. So there's there's some great individual stories in here. Uh, the framing the framing story with Jubilee getting kidnapped by Arcade as some part of like mall focus group uh, gimmick thing uh, by uh, recent guest Chris Sims and uh, Chad Bowers was incredible. And it's it, the thing that's also fascinating is it's not just comic book writers. There's a lot. Uh, I think more than one hip hop. Yeah, I there's mean, two. Gene Gray, Charlemagne the God. Yeah. Jean Grey, who I remember first, she appeared on an NPR show talking about her love of comics and the appearance she made in an issue of Deadpool where she got to kick Deadpool in the junk. <laughs> um, Cena Grace getting in a really good Iceman, little one-page Iceman. One of the things I really dug about that, yeah. and, and kind of in general, is uh, Matrix. About, for almost 40 years now, he's always been an ancillary character to the X-Universe, but he's never really officially been an X-Men. And it seems like recently he's actually part of the, the family, family. The yeah. family proper now. I mean, they include him in in the roster in Uncanny, and here, you know, he's giving gifts to everybody, and kind yeah. of geniusly uh, multiplying them. But <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think the thing about Madrox now is, you know, he was written for so long by Peter David, who always liked to not play well with others and be cranky, and so his Madrox was very much a reflection of that while still also being a comic relief character. Now you've got Matthew Rosenberg, who's one of the main ex-architects and who loves him some Madrox. So yeah, we're going to see a lot of him (laughs) going forward. Uh, Quite literally, actually. (laughs) Uh, I'm trying to think of some of my other uh, quick hit favorites here. Um, 
Ro- yeah, the, oh. the Rogan Gambit now. <laughs> yeah, and I will flat out tell you, anyone who has ever had to give a cat medicine, they know this page. They have lived through this. There's some more uh, Excalibur love in there. You know, it just yes. smells yes. like, I think the world is ready for an Excal- a, a proper Excalibur revival. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, there was a couple of attempts, but I think the closest thing we ever got was actually... That that the, gold the, annual from... Uh, well, that and the Captain, Captain Britain. Britain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, but I mean, it seems like there is a lot of love and nostalgia. I mean, 30 years later for Megan uh, and Captain Britain. And... I'm sorry. I think I made this reference many, many years ago on a Matt Signal post about things we'd like to see, but I think Excalibur and MI-13, I'm calling that word, where you get... You know, this group and, I mean, Pete Wisdom maybe more as an ancillary character just because nobody loves Pete Wisdom but me and Dan. But making them the magic police. Give Dane, uh, Dane Whitman something to do. Yep, again. put Dane Whitman on there. FISA. Yes, yeah, Fi- absolutely. Yeah, yeah, FISA. Yeah. yeah, and have Wisdom be kind of their handler. Send them out. And they, they become the magic police of the Marvel Universe because there isn't... I mean, yeah, Doctor Strange does his thing, but, you know, if there's a criminal syndicate using magic... Okay. An Excalibur book that is like Legends of Tomorrow this current season? Yes. Who's their Gary? <laughs> oh, Gary. <laughs> I guess you get Theron back, and he's just... Done. Ava, Pete Wisdom is Ava Sharp, uh-huh. and you just run with it. Yeah. You know, any attempt, you know, to bring back, you know, the tech net. I mean, I loved they came back in Mr. and Mrs. X, and they yeah. were in Rocket. Rocket! A year ago. I loved the tech net. That was one of my favorite things in the original Alan Davis yep. run. They are a great group of characters. Uh, what else? Snee. <laughs> Snee, mother. Um, rare appearance by Dr. Nemesis. Yes. Yeah. Who, it's such a shame he's been kind of forgotten. A lot of Utopia. Gang. Like, yeah. Whatever happened to Madison Jeffries? Like, you know, yeah! Never popped up again in Alpha Flight. Yeah, that's a shame. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. there we are. Brian and, and Megan with baby Maggie. I love yep. the baby talk. Shout out to Leah. <laughs> the Glob Herman page. The Glob Herman page is, I think, my favorite. And it's not even, like, you know, it's not even cramped. Half of the page is one panel of him just sitting under mistletoe, and now we wait. Wait. <laughs> This is this is the year I learned to love Glob Her. You know that budding friendship between him and Mojo of all things was a joy. That year. was the Great. best. Yeah. It was <laughs> so, so good. Needed. It was just a friend. Yeah. Uh, but apparently Ed Brisson is a huge uh, <laughs> Glob fan. So um, let's see here. Just quick, kind of quick. The the Beast page was sort of oh god the was it Teeny Howard who did yes. the cable page oh. Yeah, that oh, one was these the twenty first and twenty second were both sort of like here's a, a here's the knife, slip it in and twist a little. <laughs> this had the Claremont story, didn't it? It did. Okay. Uh, December second, one... where the one where Kitty says she's going to run for president, which uh, apparently was an odd to X Men the, the end. Um, but I don't know. Maybe they play with that in Uncanny after this yeah. whole Age of X Men thing is over. Who knows? Um, what else? Oh, Kurt. Te- teaching the children right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> with all his bamfs. And then the Mad the Madrox page, yeah. the wonderful Madrox page, and then arcade, yeah. oh arcade, yeah. because nothing says Christmas like a guy trying to kill you with a mole. <laughs> let me t- let me tell you, as soon as I saw a giant tube come down on Jubilee and the word <laughs> "slang," which is the official sound of getting kidnapped by arcade, it's like this is going to be something special. Yes. 
But how many people it was it like Christmas of like '94 got that X Men and Spider Man? <gasps> that game was game. terrible, horribly oh, hard. Game. Yeah, but it had arcade in it, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> that game was so difficult. I would have, ra- I rather. I, at the time, I would have rather play NCAA basketball. It Ooh. made me play sports games, guys. <laughs> now, real quick, before we close up, I got a question for you guys. Please, please, like, sure. like a really quick one. Not counting things that you like trades that you've had on your Amazon wish list, but yeah. for the holidays, do you guys have any history of like getting like comics as presents? Individual floppies, no. Trades, you know, I would say, yeah, pretty, pretty solidly. Because I remember um, when I was younger, like when I was early into comics, my uh, stepdad every year, like between like ninety and I would say ninety three. I'd get wall books of, of, of things mm. that I really like. Oh, nice. Like, you know, the, um, the Spider-Man and Wolverine one-shot that uh, Jim, uh, at the time Jim Owsley mm-hmm. wrote. I mean, you know, like $20, $30, $40 books, you know, that I, I'd get. Uh, uh, Amazing 252, that was a Christmas yeah. present. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. I, I, I'm with... The, I, don't, I don't tend to get them now because mostly... If there's something I want, I just buy it myself. Yeah. But when I was starting to collect, what I would, I couldn't afford trades, but I would get them for the holidays. I know my uncle Frank one year got me uh, Year One and Dark Knight Returns when I was probably just aged, probably like thirteen or fourteen, so right around that time. And I remember when I was still collecting the X Men action figures, the first wave of X Force toys had come out. And my parents got me Cable and Strife and the trade of New Mutants 87 to whatever the final issue before Extinction Agenda was. Oh, nice. So my first, I mean, I had read X-Force, but didn't have that backstory. But Mm -hmm. I got those two action figures and the trade that made some of that stuff make a little more sense. It would, it would have been funny if they kept that going year after year. So you know how those 90s X-Force action figures started getting like real deep. So it's like the next year it's like Gideon and Cruel. Yes. <laughs> oh, side note, uh, a couple years ago I go to Cleveland. So I had to visit Big Fun. And all I brought home for Dan Grote was Adam X. <laughs> yes! It was the best Christmas ever. <laughs> I still have them on my shelf. I have this like one shelf that's just like obscure '90s action. Well, it's like Adam X and Gideon and Spider Jerusalem. He just has to keep it out of touch, so you know he doesn't cut himself. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, guys, uh, this has been uh, the the merriest episode of this podcast this ever. Yes. Uh, thank you so much, as always. Anytime. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Monday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes and the ability to promote your work on our site, and two dollars gets you a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Finally, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and playable views, and we'll see you next time. WMQA!